Am I on my own? There we go. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Uh, did everybody get a sticker and a handout for this morning? Everyone get one of those, right? Raise your hand if you're missing one. Make sure you get one. Sarah's missing one. I got a couple over here missing a couple over here. Janae, if we can hit Sarah over here. Carolyn over here needs one. Just keep your hands up. Janae and Jim are looking for you. Uh, they'll, they'll give you what you need. So we're going to continue what we started uh, last week in terms of map my walk. So anyhow, first I want to begin by apologizing that none of you won the Powerball last night. So I'm sorry that none of you are walking in as millionaires. I heard like the next uh, Powerball drawing is going to be one point, estimated $1.3 billion. Isn't that crazy? Like, can you imagine? Like $1.3 billion. And sometimes people ask me like, well, what does Jesus think about that? You know, like playing lottery? And uh, he told me, as long as you tithe to the Livingstones Church, $1.3 billion, I think he's for it, and you have to buy your pastor a Harley-Davidson. That's what he told me, so just, I'm just passing along the message. That's what it is. So. Um, I need to say up front, my sermon is very long this morning, and when I say that, it's really long, because in my head, every one of my sermons is about 20 to 25 minutes, and then they never come out that way. You'd think I'd figure it out over you know, 19 years of time, and I never have. So here's what I'm going to do. Rather than um, making Meredith Waltman quit on me today out of frustration, I'm just going to preach until my time is done, and then I'm just going to stop. And so the, wherever I stop, that's where I'm going to pick up next week. So here's my, uh, like, I've got a lot of material to go, to go over. Uh, on that handout is a section for you just to take notes on, and there'll be lots of times I'll just be talking. And what I'd encourage you is, listen, you can't write down everything that I'm saying, and I'm making so many points, it's just going to overwhelm you. Here's what I would do, like engage in active listening. What I mean by that is uh, when I touch on something that you specifically go, yes, that's where I'm at, or this makes sense in regards to my spiritual life, or this is something I want to ask questions about, or I have, you know, this is a good thought for me, write that down. I think that'll be helpful to you. Not necessarily everything, but just what you already know will kind of intersect with your own spiritual life would be very helpful to you. But we're in the second week. We began last week the, the, the message series, uh, Map My Walk. And what we've been discussing is, hey, when you enter into a new year, 2016, it is good to be resolved to grow spiritually or to improve your relationship with God. I'm totally for that. But the problem is that language of those phrases are so vague and so nebulous, and in the end, we're not really sure what that means. Like, at the end of the year, we're not sure whether we really grew spiritually or improved our relationship with God. And in fact, what I would say is anybody can really say that. Like, you could be in the New Age movement, and you could be resolved to grow spiritually and improve your relationship with God. You could be a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Jew. They, we all could say that. What I'm asking is, is there something specific and unique to being followers of Jesus, to being Christians, that should give us some sort of measuring stick or litmus test as to what we even mean by growing spiritually or improving our relationship with God? And here's what I find normally happens. Whenever we use that kind of language, something comes into your mind. It's probably different for each person, but what happens is we typically think of something like uh, reading our Bible through in the year is what we mean by growing spiritually. Or maybe for others of you, it's I want to have a consistent 30-minute quiet time with God in the morning before I go to work. And that's what you really mean by growing spiritually or improving your relationship with God. And I'm for those things. Those are fine things. I'm not knocking them for a minute. But what I would contend is, is that that's not our ultimate goal as Christians when we mean to grow spiritually in 2016. What I would suggest is, what we talked about last week is, as followers of Jesus, our only measuring stick of spiritual growth and improving our relationship with God is the measuring stick of Christ-likeness. 
The question is, are we becoming more and more like Jesus? So you might have started the year on January 1st, 2016, looking like Jesus in this particular way, but man, wait till you see me on December 31st, 2016. My life, my thoughts, my actions, my behaviors are going to look so much more like Jesus than they did at the beginning of the year, and that's how you really measure spiritual growth and improving your relationship with God as a follower of Jesus. Listen, I don't care if you read your whole Bible this year, if you don't look more like Jesus because of it, or in reading it, you become meaner or more judgmental or a jerk, which does happen, you're reading it wrong, and you should stop. And I don't care if you consistently have a 30-minute quiet time with God every morning before you go to work, if after that 30 minutes of time, you go gossip with your friends for an hour, then you're doing it wrong, and you should stop. Those are just means to an end. But the end for us is Christ's likeness. And we talked about that last week, the idea of having vision and intention and means. And we even introduced, and that's what the sticker you have. And listen, you can put the sticker maybe on your computer, in your car, in the mirror, on the bathroom. It's just a little tiny. It's just a little phrase to remind you that our goal is imitatio Christi, which is the Latin phrase Christ likeness, to imitate Christ, the imitation of Christ. Imitatio Christi. And I've enjoyed, even in my own home, listening to my wife and kids try to say that phrase all week long as we bungled up the, 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 the Latin. The imitatio Christi. It just means the imitation of Christ. And one of the resources that I was already going to mention this week to you that I highly recommend, I think I even, it's in the notes for you, is uh, Thomas Kempis, who like 1380 is when he was born. So we're talking like this is an ancient sort of uh, book. But he wrote a book that's actually called The Imitation of Christ, and it is fantastic. And if you have means, you should go get it and read it this year. I think it would be a real huge blessing to you and a help to you just to kind of uh, talk about and think about The Imitation of Christ. But this week, as I was already planning to mention it, uh, I got uh, tagged on Facebook by Katie Evans and her little daughter, Karis, uh, who grabbed the book and brought it to her mom because she wanted to read it. So Karis is already paying attention, and she's already got her 2016 resolutions. You should be just like her. But uh, I recommend Thomas A. Kempis's The Imitation of Christ. Now, in this, um, the final point that we tried to make last week concerning our spiritual resolutions is that I think most of us get discouraged because it feels like every year we enter into the year, like wanting to grow spiritually. And then by the third week of January, like all of our other resolutions, we feel like we're a complete failure and we're doing it all wrong. And I think there's a real reason for that. And I think it's because sometimes we make the means to the end an end in and of itself. Don't forget, the overall goal is Christ-likeness. And there are lots of means to the end of Christ-likeness. Now, think about like physical fitness. This is the analogy we used last week. Let's say that your goal for 2016 is to become healthy and spiritually fit and get off of high blood pressure medication. That's a great goal. And one of the means that you can do to get to physical fitness is running. And that's a great means to an end of physical fitness. But let's just say for a moment, maybe you hate running. Like everything in you, like to the core of your being is like, I hate running because you hate it and you were in a farming accident that chopped off seven of your toes, so you're not going to be good at it, right? So what are you going to do? Well, there are other means to physical fitness, right? Maybe your thing is cycling or maybe your thing is swimming. Or maybe your thing is CrossFit or powerlifting or racquetball. I, don't, I mean, so you, what you recognize is there are other means to the end of physical fitness. It's the same thing with Christ's likeness. And what happens is a lot of times in evangelical churches, what you hear ad nauseum is, well, if you want to grow spiritually, you have to pray and you have to read your Bible. Pray, read your Bible, pray, read your Bible. Pray. That's all you hear, ad nauseum. And I'm not opposed to those things, but what I'd like us to contend with is, what do you do if by way of personality and how God knit you together, you just hate reading? Like You just do. Like We don't want to admit that to other people, but just if we're honest with ourselves, I hate reading. 
And if, I, if being more like Christ is going to be for me having to read the whole Bible in the next year, then I'm probably going to bail out by the third week of January. My resolutions are going to come to a complete failure. What I would suggest is that's just one means. And if you hate reading, don't choose it then as your means to Christ's likeness. And what I'd like us to open up to the possibility is, listen, if you, if you continually serve meals at a homeless center, that is just as legitimate as a means to Christ's likeness as reading your Bible through the year. Or maybe because of how God put you together and wired you together and knit you together in terms of personality, maybe building homes for Habitat for Humanity will be your path and means to the end of Christ's likeness. And I'd like just to kind of have a much broader open idea to there are lots of means to Christ's likeness. And the question for us is, how did God put us together by way of personality that we don't, we don't bail the third week of January because this is who we are. This is how God put me together. I do this naturally, and it's leading me to look more like Jesus. So last week, we took a test together, and the 11 o'clock service did way better than 930. Don't tell them I told you that. But uh, I know it could be a little confusing, so hopefully over the week, you had a chance. If you did walk out of here confused, and many people did, so don't feel bad about that, you had a chance to kind of see where you're at in terms of personality scale spiritually, and that might give you pointers and indicators and hints in regards to where you're headed in terms of, no, this is who I am and how God put me together, and it might give you clues to what are the best means then to Christ-likeness. And so that's where we ended. If you didn't uh, take that test, uh, hopefully you you can grab a copy. Or listen, if you missed last week, go online, livingstones.cc, click on the message tab, you can hear the message, and there's also a PDF file of that test. And you can take it then. We okay? All right, we're all good. Now, this morning, I want to build on what we started last week and introduce to you six major movements or streams of spiritual formation that have existed in the church for 2,000 years. Like, I think there are six major streams or movements that have existed in the church for the past 2,000 years, and I want to introduce them to you. And the reason why is, as you're attempting to map your walk for 2016, and as you're trying to get a handle on your unique makeup and personality, I'm hoping that what will happen is at least one of these six streams will make you go, oh yeah, that is totally me. Like, that is exactly where I fit in. And once you identify that, all of a sudden it will open up in your mind and in your heart all the possibilities of within that stream, how it is that you can flow spiritually and what works best for you. Now listen, you're invited to try out all the streams if you want to, but my guess is you'll find at least one that will feel like home to you. It's your spot. The other streams might feel like when you're in it, you're going upstream and having to work harder at it, but my guess is there'll be one that like, oh no, you naturally flow with the current of that stream. And it might be the place of both rest and for you then spiritual formation. And this is why I think we're in a unique place here at the Living Stones Church for this is because uh, you all come from such a complete diverse background of churches and religious experiences in a way that I don't see typically in most churches. I'm not saying it doesn't ever exist, but at least here, like when I've gotten to know your stories and your backgrounds, like you guys are all over the map in regards to upbringing and religious backgrounds. And so we don't like, that's not true for other churches. If you were going to a Catholic church this morning, you'd probably be sitting around other people who probably grew up in a Catholic church. If you were in a Southern Baptist church this morning, you'd probably be sitting around other people who, in the main, probably grew up in a Southern Baptist church. If you were in a Pentecostal church, you would probably be sitting around people all around you who are Pentecostal by way of background. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just kind of the way it is. But here at the Living Stones Church, you guys are all over the place. I mean, from Methodists and Mennonites and Pentecostals and some even grew up Amish. I mean, like all over the map is where you all come from. And why I think that's unique for us and even a positive thing is... um, 
it allows us the opportunity that, like, we could actually flow in six different streams in this church and hit different people, depending on your background and, and, and where you're at and what you grew up in and what you're used to. But given our diversity, I, I think we probably can uh, be poised to affirm and celebrate and find opportunity for each of these streams in this one place that we meet at, at 718 East Dumber Avenue, a place for real spiritual formation and Christ-likeness. Now, because of time, I'm going to just... Each stream, I'm just going to talk about for a very limited amount of time. I'm just going to be a quick snapshot and brief synopsis. But if you're interested in more, a lot of this material comes from this book. It's by a guy named Richard Foster, who I recommend any book by Richard Foster. Just a fantastic writer. But he has a book that's called Streams of Living Water, and it's celebrating the great traditions of Christian faith. But he will break down these six different movements or streams and give a whole lot more uh, detail and illustrations of those different six streams. So if you are interested or you find one, like I'd like to know more about that, it would be a great resource for you in regards to moving forward. So without further ado, number one, the first stream I want to talk about, the first movement, is called the Contemplative Tradition, Discovering the Prayer-Filled Life. The Contemplative Tradition, Discovering the Prayer-Filled Life. Now, the contemplative stream addresses the human longing for the practice of the presence of God. And so when you hear that phrase, the practice of the presence of God, let me try to illustrate, if I could, a little bit by both individuals and maybe movements. Now, I don't expect you to have heard of all of these individuals, but uh, let me kind of cover some individuals that would be kind of, at least over the last 2,000 years, noteworthy in this movement. Like, if I had to pick a biblical character, I would say John the Apostle. It's probably, in terms of his writings and his style and his personality, kind of fits in the contemplative tradition. Antony of Egypt, Gregory of Nyssa, St. Benedict, I don't know if you've ever heard that name, started the Benedictine monasteries, Claire of Assisi, Julian of Norwich, John of the Cross, Brother Lawrence, Thomas Kelly, and more recently, uh, Thomas Merton a famous Catholic priest that passed away a couple years ago, and Henry Nouwen. I don't know if you're familiar with those names, but they would fit kind of into that uh, contemplative uh, stream. And in terms of movements, if you read almost anything in the first three or 400 years of the church's history, a lot of it will come out of what we call the Desert Fathers, and all of them kind of fit in that contemplative stream, or the Benedictine monasteries from the 6th century all the way down to the present, the Poor Clares, a convent that got started in the 13th century and continues today, the Moravian movement, uh, the Pietist movement from the 17th century to the present. Those would all be kind of you know, movements of the contemplative stream. But these movements focus on intimacy with God. And they have as central issues the ideas of prayer and silence and solitude and meditation. So right now, by way of personality, if how God wired you together, if the idea of, man, if I could just get away, like maybe in a cabin or in a retreat center for a whole day to myself, just, I mean, nobody around, just me, and just it's quiet and solitude, if there's something in that makes you go, oh, I long for that, you might swim then in the contemplative stream. Now, not everybody does. Like for others of you, you're not attracted to that at all. But I'm guessing there's somebody here, there's several of you here this morning where in terms of just personality and makeup, you recognize, no, I kind of gravitate towards just kind of prayer and solitude and silence and meditation. Now, you see historically examples of men and women who kind of fled the cities to create monasteries and cloisters, and, and I'm not suggesting everyone should move into a monastery or a convent because most of you won't qualify anyhow. <laughs> but to ask the question, if this is kind of where you gravitate towards, how does this ancient and rich stream of spiritual formation work and make sense in your life and day and age? I just where you normally are with all of your work and all your other tasks, how does it make sense to you? 
And I, I can attest to, I don't naturally flow in this one. Like the idea of solitude and silence is a real discipline to me. Like to not talk for 24 hours is a real discipline to me. Um, but I've been blessed in my life. In fact, I might put it, if, I had, if you were to ask me, like when's a time in your life where you grew the most spiritually? What I would say in response is, I think it comes right out of this stream in terms of the time that I've enjoyed in my life, the greatest spiritual growth. In fact, um, I have a habit, uh, even today, where uh, once a month I go to a retreat center for 24 hours, just like overnight, and just kind of engage in that silence and solitude, some of those spiritual disciplines. And then I also, by way of habit, once a year, spend a whole week at a Benedictine monastery in southern Indiana called uh, St. Minard is the name of it. And I join the monks. I don't get a habit. I think I should. But I mean, but I joined the monks in their divine hours, what they call it, where they pray five times a day. And so it starts at 5.30 in the morning and then again at 7.30 and at noon and then 5 o'clock and it ends at 7 in the evening, complying is what they call it, uh, their divine hours. And just kind of a time where I have to discipline myself because I'm not naturally wired like that, but I discipline myself to kind of get into that, the presence of God and more intense so, uh, intimacy of silence and solitude and prayer and those sorts of things. In fact, if I were to answer the question like, when did I grow the most spiritually? I would say it was probably in the middle of a 40-day fast that I started uh, when I was about 14 years ago when I was turning 30 years old. Um, I mean, a couple years ago, I meant when I was turning 30 years old. But within that time, I spent the last 10 days of that 40 days of fast in a retreat center all by myself. And like for 10 days, I was in complete silence and solitude, wasn't talking to anybody, nobody, nobody was talking to me. And when I look back, it is still, I never had that much intimacy with God or even sense uh, outside of that time of prayer and fasting, and it was a very formative point in my life, and even for our story here and vision here at the Livingstones Church, which I'll share in a couple weeks from now. Uh, but listen, I'm not saying you have to go on a monthly or even annual retreat to flow in this stream. For some of you, that's completely impossible, but I, I would suggest, no, there are a lot of other ways. Like, how do you kind of introduce the contemplative uh, disciplines to your life? There's a guy named Frank C. Uh, Laubach is his name. Uh, in the previous century, he was big in literacy, liter, literacy work throughout the world, but he was a contemplative who would try different methods to, how do I incorporate prayer and intimacy with God just in my everyday routine, what I'm doing? So he came up with what's called a Game of Minutes, is what he called it, which is different than Game of Thrones, but it's a Game of Minutes where he tried to, every waking, during his waking day, every minute could he bring God to his mind, every minute of the day. And so that was his way of trying to pray without ceasing, and he began to make a habit of every minute of the day having God come to mind in some particular way, even as he's having meetings and he's doing other tasks, doing other things that God would just kind of surface to his mind. The other thing he practiced what he called flash prayers, meaning like just uh, when he was around in a grocery store and people were in line in front of him, he would do a flash prayer where he would just silently just pray for everybody in line in front of him. Or if he's on a street corner and just crowds are walking by, he would just pray for the crowds that were walking by. Or in a parking lot trying to park your car, you don't want somebody to cut you off and you've been waiting for a minute for that spot and they, somebody else took it. Well, rather than flipping them off, he would just, he would do a flash prayer and pray for them. Not like God rained down, you know, sulfur, but I mean like just a flash prayer of blessing. And he would just tell stories about how that transformed his entire life just to, be, to live in a continual state of intimacy with God even as he's going through his normal day. Others of you, it might be experimenting with other venues of solitude. Maybe for you, you might once a week wake up pre-dawn before the sun comes. I'm just before that. I mean, I would not this weather necessarily, but I mean, and just listen to the awakening sounds of the world, whether you're in the city or out in the country. For others of you, it might be just limit your speaking for one day. Like just for one day, see if you can go the whole day without really saying much of anything that's not necessary. And then just see and reflect on what that does to you and your thoughts about yourself and others. 
Maybe for others of you, you sit in an airport or a bus station or the mall and observe people carefully reflecting on what you see. Or maybe take a day for silent retreat or longer if you can. Or maybe for some, just for one month, on your way to work, instead of listening to talk radio or the radio, whatever, just leave the radio off and sit in complete silence and let your commute to work be a time of intimacy and the presence of God, and you just have communion with God during that time period. Or maybe you might just be waking up in the morning at 2 in the morning, lighting a candle just for an hour, praying and listening to the sounds of the night. For others of you, it might be instead of reading your Bible, because you could do that, right? Like, I'm going to read these seven chapters, and you check that off, you move right on. Instead of reading the Bible, pray the Bible. And do it slowly and with great meditation. Maybe start in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. This is where the angel of the Lord tells Mary, you're about to give birth to Jesus. I don't know if you remember her response, but she says, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Maybe just start there. Like, don't go fast. Just meditate and pray that. I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant servant. And don't rush. Just let the Scriptures kind of be for you prayer. This is kind of entering into that contemplative stream. And for others of you, I mean, we kind of live in a day and age in a culture and a world where we kind of celebrate busyness and, you know, type A personality. And we know sometimes there's that human itch to kind of get ahead and be obsessed with, you know, that fast-paced, busy, productive life. Within the contemplative tradition is this whole idea of holy leisure And one of the most spiritual things you might do towards Christ's likeness might simply be to take a nap. (laughs) Finally, a spiritual discipline I could get behind, right? Or maybe just spend an hour with your neighbor talking about nothing particularly important. Or maybe take a walk, not for exercise, but just for the sheer joy of it. Take a bath instead of a shower. Just waste time for God, so to speak, in holy leisure. These would be things that would be connected to the contemplative life. And if you read the works of the great contemplatives, you'll see words pop up all the time, words like fire and love and peace and delight and emptiness. And the God that is hidden is also an experience and wisdom and transformation. And so those are some things that you, we'd find in that stream. And for some of you, that might be, oh, my heart, Whew, I love that. But ultimately what I'd say is, because our task is not to imitate the desert fathers, our task is to imitate Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, did Jesus ever swim in this contemplative stream? And I think if you'll read the Gospels, what you'll see is over and over again, Jesus walked and lived and swam in the contemplative stream. For example, Luke chapter, there's lots of passages I could give you, I'm just going to give you a snapshot of them. Luke chapter 3 verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And while that was happening, what was he doing? And as he was praying, heaven was opened. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 12. You'll see this all the time through the Gospels. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And what did he do? He spent the night praying to God. That's a contemplative stream. Or Luke chapter 5, verse 15, it says, Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to him to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So, I mean, the possibilities for busyness of ministries all over him. But what does Jesus do? But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. It is Jesus' movement in the contemplative stream towards that intimacy with his Father that allows him to make these kind of statements. Like John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Now, how could Jesus say that? 
because of the time he spent in intimacy with the Father. Or John 5, verse 30, by myself, I could do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Well, how can he say that? Because he spent time in that contemplative stream. One more, John 14, verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Now, could you imagine saying that like Jesus? Like, could you imagine saying, I I don't do anything apart from what the Father has assigned to me today, and that's how I live my entire life. How does that happen? The contemplative stream. Now, the second one I want to go over is called the holiness stream, discovering the virtuous life. The holiness stream or tradition, discovering the virtuous life. And immediately, one of the passages that come to mind for me is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It says, Paul says, train yourself to be godly. And if you have any proclivity towards this stream, there's something already in that language like, whoo right? We're going to get it on here. We're going to train ourselves in godliness. Verse 8 says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, the focus of the holiness tradition is on the reformation, the inward reformation of the heart and out of it to develop what we would call holy habits. And if I had to pick like individuals and movements throughout the 2,000-year church history that might be sign- uh, signify this, in terms of individuals, I would pick James, Jesus' brother. He wrote the little letter of James to us. It has a lot about the virtuous life and the inner transformation of the heart in there. Tertullian, John Cassian, Bernardo Clairvaux, Thomas A. Kempis, the book I recommended, Ignatius of Loyola, if you come from a Catholic background, you might recognize that name, Menno Simons, that's the picture you're seeing here, Menno Simons, this is his senior uh, yearbook picture. Um, if you come from an Anabaptist background, a Mennonite background, that's Menno Simon started that. Teresa of Avila, Blaise Pascal, John Wesley, if you come from a Wesleyan background or a Methodist background, John Wesleyan, uh, you're probably familiar with that name, Francis Asbury, E. Stanley Jones, and finally, more contemporary, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's the picture you're seeing up here. Uh, he was a German Christian who even was involved in an assassination plot against Hitler, uh, but he was very much uh, the leader of the confessing church in Germany uh, during the time of Nazism. And it's a fascinating story, but all of his writings would kind of reflect uh, the virtuous life and the holiness tradition. In terms of movements, the Cistercians, the uh, 12th century to the present uh, monasteries, Roman Catholic Reformation, the Anabaptist movement of the 16th century to the present, uh, the Puritan movement, 16th to 18th century, the holiness movement, 18th century to the present. Now, the key to the holiness tradition is to purify the source of what actions flow, and that is the heart. And in so doing, it will allow us then in life the ability to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And this is important because our goal is to instinctively respond to all the situations of our life just like Jesus did. So if I get that memo at work or the boss comes in and says this to me or I come home and find out the kids did this, I don't want to fly off the handle like Sam because that's no good for anybody. I want to instinctively respond like Jesus would. And when you watch Jesus' ministry, what's always amazing to me is no matter who he's with, with children or with women or with men, what you'll notice, he always responds appropriately and with what is necessary and capably. And that's the task of the holiness tradition as to how can we formulate holy habits and disciplines in our life in such a way that it forms in our heart the ability to, in every circumstance and situation, to respond instinctively in the way of Jesus. And out of that, sometimes the holiness movement gets a bad rap because when we hear the word holy, all sorts of images come to our mind. I'm not even sure it's positive anymore, or at least like it was intended to be. We kind of think of holier than thou, like who wants to be holier than thou? But that's not what it's about at all. 
It's to think in terms of we train. As athletes of God, we plan kind of a program of spiritual disciplines that will change our hearts and allow us to grow in grace. For example, if in quiet meditation you recognize, I think I've got a lot of pride in my life. Well, you begin to establish a spiritual discipline that attacks pride. You know what the the big spiritual discipline is that goes after pride? Service. So if you recognize pride is an issue in my life, when you begin to go out and start to serve other people, you'll see that pride will be attacked and start to fall away from your life. Or maybe for you, it's the loss of hope. You sense that in your heart. Then prayer and meditation might be the disciplines that you take up. Or maybe for you, if you find that in your life you have some compulsions that are gripping you and some obsessions that you're not getting beyond, you know what discipline will help you in that? Fasting. And fasting from all sorts of things. Like if you're addicted to the Facebook news feed, you just fast from Facebook. And you learn new disciplines that spiritually begin to transform your heart in such a way that releases you from those compulsions and those obsessions. I mean, just so to speak, hypothetically speaking. Um, this tra- like if you need more faith in your heart, you can sense, move towards worship by way of discipline. This is training in holiness. The other thing we can do is we invite other people to travel this journey with us. And in so doing, you have people who are companions with you in the task of having heart transformation or even mentors in it. And some of my, when I look back at my own life experience, some of the greatest uh, movements spiritually for me was in the context of a group. So some of you have that here in your group context, uh, but I remember, you know, I'd say about several years ago now, but uh, I, just informally, spontaneously, uh, some of my closest friends in this church, we got together and started a small group together. And I'll never forget, uh, you know, we kind of would read the Bible and kind of would read a book together and kind of have prayer requests. But I remember one particular evening, one of, the, one of my friends in the group just kind of poured out confession. I mean, he just kind of let it all out there. And it opened the door for everyone around the table just to kind of, all right, here we go, just kind of confess the junk that was in the life. And it was such an open, vulnerable moment. And in it, it gave each of us permission to ask any question we really wanted to of each other. And so every week when we met, it was just sort of like, how is your spirit doing? How is your heart doing? How is this going in your life? And, and it was such a huge movement for us spiritually to have somebody else that we had granted. We were already friends. We already trusted one another to give ourselves permission to help each other develop the holy habits necessary to have heart transformation that led to a virtuous life. So those become some of the things that I would recommend, even things like when you stumble and fall, and you will, you just get back up again. You start all over again. We never spend too much time lamenting our failures and shortcomings. Learn from them, but move on because it produces fortitude, and fortitude builds habits, and habits builds character, and character builds your destiny. But again, it goes back to the question of imitatio Christi. Does Jesus do the holiness stream and tradition? Where do we see that in his life and ministry? And I'm struck when I watch Jesus again about how appropriate and timely and capable he is, but how did he do that? I think because he enters into training. And two scenes I would offer to you in the Scriptures. One is, you remember the temptation of Jesus? That's all about holiness training. And so what happens is it says the Spirit led Jesus into the desert where He was fasting for 40 days. And at the end of that, when probably His weakest moment, Satan shows up to tempt Him. And in that scene, you see Jesus' temptation. And it's in three major ways. And all three temptations represent... And I could have a whole sermon on each, but just each temptation represents an economic temptation through the bread, a religious temptation through jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, and a political temptation as Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down to me. But Jesus was in the midst of heart training that allowed him to reject all of those temptations, and he developed the habits and the responses necessary to say, no, that's not the life that the Father has called me to. And the second scene I'd point to is just the Sermon on the Mount. Like Jesus' teachings, Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 7, 
Because here you'll see Jesus, he always puts his finger on the heart. He recognizes, listen, you could do externally all the right things. Like you could do all the right things religiously. In fact, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were doing all the right things externally, but Jesus knew, but your hearts are totally corrupt. And what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of God. And then he begins his teachings, and he says, listen, I know that you've heard, I don't want you to murder, but you can't get through murder unless you pass through anger, and anger is the hard issue. So Jesus puts his finger on anger. He says, listen, I know that you can externally not commit adultery, but the problem is with the heart and it's full of lust because you can't get to adultery until you pass through the heart issue of lust. And I know you've heard, don't swear about the temple and on God and blah, blah, blah. But I say to you, be the kind of person with enough integrity that when you say yes, everyone around you will know it's a yes. And when you say no, everyone around you will know it's a no. What does Jesus do? He puts his finger on the heart issue. Forget about the externals. What kind of heart do you have? Go after that and it changes everything. It's through that emphasis of heart reformation that we learn, like Jesus, how to do the right thing at the right time in the right way. The third one, last one, and I'll close with this uh, this morning, so, and I'll go as fast as I can. Charismatic tradition is what it's called. Discovering the Spirit-empowered life. One more here, and then we'll, we'll pick up the rest of them next week. The charismatic tradition. Discovering the Spirit-empowered life. Now, these movements, and they go back 2,000 years. Like This is not like a new thing. Like It goes back thousands of years. They focus on the gift and work of the Holy Spirit. Emphasis has been on the work of the Holy Spirit in imparting a sense of God's immediate presence, His work in moral transformation and in the development of spiritual gifts and fruits for the benefits of the church and for mankind. Now, if I had to give you some notable individuals and movements in that, I would pick the Apostle Paul more than anybody else in regards to the Scriptures because the the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual gifts more than anybody else. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I mean, I wish you all spoke in tongues as much as I do. And others and individuals, be Montanaeus, Perpetua, Gregory the Great. Maybe you've heard of Francis of Assisi. You heard that name? He would be one who'd flow in the charismatic stream. Joan of Arc, maybe you know that name in history. George Fox. Charles Wesley, that's John's brother, Charles William Seymour. William Seymour was a great African-American preacher who started the Pentecostal church that we now have today uh, in the Azusa Street Revivals in Los Angeles, California in the first part of the 19th or 20th century. Oral Roberts would probably be another name you might be familiar with, more contemporary. And finally, I'd offer John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement. So when you see a Vineyard church, it tra- traces back to uh, John, John Wimber. Other movements, the Montanist movement, 2nd and 3rd centuries, the Gregorian liturgical movement, 7th century to the present, the Franciscan monasteries, I don't know if you've heard of that, 13th century to the present, the Pentecostal movement, 20th century to the present, and the charismatic renewal that, that affected many different denominations, the 20th century to the present. Now, the great emphasis historically in this stream is the focus and reclaiming of the experience of the spiritual gifts or the charismata. And at its best, it equally emphasizes the fruits of of the Spirit, particularly the fruit of love. And there's always, it seems, a great emphasis on unity with diversity. And one of the things I love about uh, William Seymour's story, that's the guy who kind of started the modern-day Pentecostal churches and the Azusa Street Revivals in Los Angeles. He was an African-American preacher, and he accomplished what nobody did in his day. Like in the early 1900s, everyone lived under Jim Crow laws and deep segregation. But God was doing a new work through William Seymour 
And what they saw in his revival meetings is, I mean, it broke down every class barrier. I mean, racially, economically, politically, large masses of people who have no business being together by the power of the Holy Spirit began to discover a new movement in the Spirit and in God and brought about great unity even in the midst of their diversity. And even my own experience in life in terms of kind of the charismatic stream, uh, I grew up in a church that we believe that all the spiritual gifts had ended because we got the Bible. Like, they do not exist today. And so we call it cessationism, the name of it. Like, they just don't exist. And then I was uh, doing my graduate work at Abilene Christian University, and I even came back here for a summer as the youth ministry intern uh, here at this church. And during that time, I encountered a guy who both wrote a book and had some teaching uh, called Jack Deere was his name, and he wrote a book called uh, Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit. And in it, he described his own journey as a theologian. He taught at Dallas Theological Seminary as a theologian of how he went from believing that none of the gifts existed today to... No, I think God is still by the power of His Spirit pouring out those things today for us and are necessary for mission and life and church. And uh, through those teachings, uh, became convinced that I think I'm wrong. Like, I, there, there's nothing in the Bible that suggests that the gifts of the Spirit are going to end at this time. And in it, that a whole new world began to open up. And it changed everything in terms of my understanding, in terms of God still empowering the church and work of His kingdom and extending those gifts were essential in it. And so when you ask, well, how do you practice the charismatic tradition? Here's what I'd suggest to you. Hang out with some of those who have some history and experience in this area of life and learn from them. And we have many here at the Living Stones Church who come right out of that background and experience and tradition. Many of them you'll find on our intercessory team. They can help you out. And what I'd say is simply ask God. Don't be afraid. Ask God. You know, the the Scriptures tell us that that God is a good God. Like Jesus will say, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more our Father in heaven knows how to give good gifts to His children who ask. What that means is if you say, God, I want whatever spiritual gift you have to offer me that you want me to have for the sake of your, for your church, I don't think God's going to curse you. Jesus, He's not going to give him like a scorpion. He's not going to give him a rock when you ask for bread. God's intent is not to embarrass you or make you look like an idiot. Don't hesitate to ask God. And ask others to pray, for, uh, to pray over you to receive a gift. I'd also say rest easy in your fears in that. Have greater confidence in God's ability to lead you than Satan's ability to deceive you. And so follow that uh, without being misled. And also regularly test your leadings and experiences of the Spirit with people around you. It's okay to say, I think God might have said this to me, but I don't know. And I think this might be a spiritual gift in my life, but I don't know. And you kind of share with people you trust and have them pray for you and discern whether, no, that does seem to be an actual prompting and leading and gifting of the Holy Spirit. But if we go back to Jesus, right, imitatio Christi, this is not about, hey, let's imitate charismatics, it's about... Did Jesus swim in this? And if he did, should we consider it? What you'll see as you read the Gospels is over and over and over, Jesus moves in the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. It will say, by the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of Jesus' life, he looks at his disciples. You know what he says to his disciples? You know what promises, the promise he gives to his disciples? You know what they're going to receive? The exact same Holy Spirit. The exact same one. Not a different one. The exact same one. We tend to think that Jesus executed his earthly ministry by some sort of magic voodoo. Listen, Jesus didn't heal anybody by magic voodoo. He didn't heal anybody by some sort of, he didn't cause the blind to see with any hocus pocus magic trick. He did those things as a human empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so just, it's all over, but let me give you a couple examples. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. This is at Jesus' baptism. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and what happened? The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Or we'll say in John 4, verses 1 and 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led, what? 
by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was, for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. We've talked about that story. Or Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee, what? In the power of the Holy Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. And over, over and over again, Jesus, when he has discernment, when he does miracles or exorcisms or healing, all of those were by the Holy Spirit. And again, his promise then is for his disciples, you're going to get this because I'm going back to heaven. The charismatic stream is a very important stream in regards to our spiritual formation and movements towards Christ's likeness or imitatio Christi. Okay, we made it through three. Are we all good? We all right? We're going to close here. I'll pick up the last three. And, and here's what we're all wanting to do. Like, I know you're like, okay, 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 okay. At the end, what we're wanting to do is get a big picture of, okay, well, given the fact that this is my personality and these six streams, this is where I swim best. So you can kind of have a roadmap for your own personal life in regards to the rest of the year of, this is what's going to be my best chances of being more like Christ by the end of the year than where I started. So that's kind of what we're hoping to, we'll wrap that all up next week as we wrap up this series. Let's just go ahead and, if you wouldn't mind, let's go bow your head and we'll kind of pray together. Father, we come